looking into this last week as we talked about drawing near to God. Now, this evening, I want to look at the way of the Lord, and we're going to start with verse number 9. I'll read the first three verses here, 9, 10, and 11, and then we'll begin to teach. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. Now, in the earlier verses, we talked about what it means to really be close to God. And we looked at these scriptures with some detail. And I told you in verse 1 that whenever the Bible, for the most part, speaks about God, he's always presented as though he's up high above us, far above us in the heavens. And we explained to you that even though we pray like that, we understand that on this side of the cross, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. So our proximity to him is one of nearness. We then explain to you that God is the only one we put our trust and confidence in because there's no other God, no other person that we should trust. People will disappoint you, but God will not disappoint you. We explained that when we wait on the Lord, we won't be ashamed because there's no disappointment with him. And shame is a sentiment or feeling that people experience when they're embarrassed. But the Bible teaches us in the New Testament, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So we should never be embarrassed by what the Bible teaches. But there are some people who are. I've met people who have not liked certain statements in the Scripture or certain events in the Bible, and they really are embarrassed when someone brings it up to them, and they have to try to defend certain things. You say, what, what kinds of things? The flood, for instance. They'll say, well, why would God flood the earth and destroy the people he created? So some people do have some kind of embarrassment when it comes to certain things in the Scripture, I've never experienced that because I've always understood that he's God and not me. And God doesn't owe me any answers or any excuses at all. The Scripture says the secret things belong to the Lord, but what he's revealed belongs to us. Well, in talking about the sins of our youth and the mercies of the Lord and the guidance of the King in verse 5, we explain to you, that the transgressions that we had in our youth, we should be very glad that God doesn't remember them anymore. And I told you we all have done things in our youth that we hope no one ever finds out about. Praise God, nobody will know these things. So now then, verse 9 tells us two things about meek people. Number one, they're guidable. Number two, they're teachable. What is a meek person? You'll remember on Sunday as I was teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, I told you that a meek person is someone who's submissive and yielded to the things of God. So a meek person is a humble person, not arrogant, not self-righteous, not prideful, because a meek person will allow himself or herself to be led by someone who knows where they're going. And if God is the guide, he knows where he's going. If, if, the, if the goal of Christianity is to get from earth to heaven, 
then obviously God has a pathway to get each one of us there, and the pathway isn't the problem. The problem is being able to be guided by God. And many people are self-sufficient. They think they know their own their own path. And the Scripture says, you know, that there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Why do you think it is that a man in the Middle East can grow up hating Jewish people or any other person of a religion that's not Islamic, and then in all of that anger, one day volunteer to be a suicide bomber? How do you teach a young girl or a young boy to do that, where a young man will cloister himself in a room and separate himself from his family and they not know where he is, and then he'll take the time to just read over passages from the Koran, preparing his heart and his mind for his mission of death. And then on that day when he's going to go through with it and he receives his assignment, he gets up, he writes a letter to his mom and dad, explains to them that he's going to become a shaheed, which is a martyr, and then that young man gets up, starts putting his green or blue bandanas around his head. He's going to put that bomb vest upon him. He's going to put his Arab-Israeli garb upon him, and then he's going to go to some bus stop, and there at that bus stop, he's going to wait. Or he's going to try to approach some guide guard post where some Israeli folks are. And when he's sitting there at the bus stop and everybody's talking and having that conversation and military people are going back to uh, their jobs and some are going home on vacation, he gets on the bus with the rest of them. He just looks like a normal, everyday Arab Israeli or someone who's a part of their culture. And then as he's riding along and the bus is stopping, he's sitting there holding his Islamic beads, and he's praying the prayers of Allah. Ninety-nine names of Allah, ninety-nine beads on that thing. And at a certain point, he stands up and shouts, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And when he does, and by the time the people look around to see what's going on, he hits a button, and then there's a fireball. That man was taught that if he died in that manner, that he'd go into an Islamic heaven where the virgins would feed him throughout all of eternity. Here's a man on the path that was guided. Here's a man that was guidable. But here's a man that was entirely misled. And can you even fathom what that has to be like for these people who were dying like that in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s, hit a button, believing they're about to go to an Islamic heaven, and then on the other side of that last breath, that next breath they take, they're in hell. It's haunting, you know, haunting. But here's what the Scripture says in verse 9. The meek will he guide in judgment. Now, meek does not mean naive. Because you know as well as I do, there are some people who are naive. Uh, people who were raised out here and did not spend a lot of time in the city may not necessarily be street smart. People who were raised in the city and then come out to rural America certainly are not knowledgeable 
about how small towns work. You understand? Meek doesn't mean naive. It doesn't mean you're going to believe anything and everything that somebody tells you and you're just going to be led along uh, by your nose, but it does mean that you're humble enough to consider what it is that God is trying to say to you. And the Scripture says in verse 9, he will guide you in judgment. So God will give you the ability to recognize what is right, what is wrong, what is wise, what is not wise, what is true, what is false, to make good judgment calls. Now, sometimes people will tell you, well, of course, if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to judge. That's untrue. Because they'll say, well, then the Bible says don't judge, and I always say, well, quote the whole verse. What the Bible says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount is judge not so that you won't be judged, because if you do judge, you're going to be judged with the same judgment. That is to say, don't tell people what they're doing is wrong if you're turning around doing the exact same thing. Because there are plenty of scriptures where the Bible tells us we are the judge. The scripture says judgment must begin at the house of God. So who has to do the judging? The people in the church. The scripture says that, Paul says that, that, that we who are wise, we do judge what is right, what is wrong. One day we're going to judge angels, as the Bible says. Why do we go to the secular law when we should be able to come to the church and make judgment calls regarding issues between believers in the church? So judging people isn't the issue. The problem people run into is condemning folks. Now, I don't know anything about somebody's salvation, their personal walk with God, so I can't condemn someone in that regard, but I can make a judgment call and tell someone that lifestyle is contrary to the book. And the Bible says in Proverbs three thirty-three, I believe it is, the curse of the Lord is in the habitation of the wicked. Mm-hmm. But he blesses the habitation of those that walk with him. The meek is guidable. And then verse 9 again, the meek is teachable. We just mentioned that. We've all met people who aren't teachable. And the reason some people aren't teachable is because they know everything. Yeah, it's kind of hard to teach a person like that. You ever try to teach a person how to change a spare tire and they already know how to do it? You ever try to teach somebody how to change brakes on a car and they already know how to do it? You ever try to teach somebody how to, how to give a tune-up and they already know how, how to do it? Go into a kitchen with several ladies and you're making homemade biscuits or cornbread. Everybody has their own way to do it. Very difficult to get certain truths over to people who are not open to hear what may be different from what they have believed. A teachable person is looking for wisdom and understanding, and that's why the Bible says a wise person will attain unto wise counsel. Because if you're wise and you run with foolish people, you'll be as foolish as they are. But if you run with people with them, you'll be be like them. I I was always one of those young preachers when I was a teenager and in my 20s and 30s. I loved being around older people, especially old preachers. And I spent the majority of my time hanging out with old preachers. And when I was 18 and 19 and and my friends would be going here, there, and yon to go to a different revival, and a lot of them would be hanging out doing things together. 
I'd find some old preacher that I could drive around to his meetings or that I could go to his house and just sit there and ask questions about how he got called to the ministry, things he's learned in the ministry. Well, I think spending time with a lot of older preachers has kept me from a lot of nonsense, a lot of false doctrine, a lot of scandal. And no stories of me running around with other people's wives, nothing like that. There's a way to walk with God and preserve your testimony, but we have to be teachable. Teachable. Have to be the kind of people that are willing to listen, because even if what I know is right, it's possible that somebody else can explain it to me and it'd be even better for me. And that's what I enjoy. Okay, so verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. So God has a variety of different paths. This is not saying that all of these different paths are different religions. We're not saying that there's a way to get to God through Buddhism and Hinduism and Wicca and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and praying to saints. We're not saying that at all. What we are saying is that you have Christians all over this planet, in more than 200 different nations, all of us are on different paths because we have different jobs. We live in different places. We live in different cities, and yet all of us are trying to make it to the one city called New Jerusalem. That's where we're all trying to get to. So spiritually then, the paths that we are, we're on are paths that are paved in mercy, because his mercies are new every morning, and as I'm on this path and I'm walking with God, I've got flaws, I've got defects, I'm going to need forgiveness, and his mercies are going to be there to help me, because without his mercy, I won't want to continue on the path. Well, I walk with a God that holds grudges, see? And then that path is paved in truth. <clears throat> what is the truth? We have to compare any teaching, any doctrine, any notion we got to compare it to the book. We have to. If, if you're having a conversation with someone who calls themselves a Christian, and they say to you, well, I, I just really don't see anything wrong with the taking of the life of a, a baby in an abortion, then you should be able to come to the book and, and walk them back to the book of Genesis and explain to them. There was a lady named Rebecca one time who was wondering why she was having all this trouble in her bosom, and so she was talking to God, and God spoke to her and said, you've got two nations inside of you. So each one of those children, from God's perspective, he didn't just see the two babies. He saw the two babies. He saw their adulthood. He saw their future seed. He saw what was coming out of them. So with every child that comes into this earth, or I should say this word, with every child that is conceived, God is able to see their children, their grandchildren, their great-great-grandchildren, and a hundred years in the distance if that child is able to come into existence. That's what God sees. So when someone says that to me, then I just come back to the book. I say, I'll stay with the book. You can argue about whether or not you think it's truly a baby where you think it's just a blob or a mass of this inside of a person's womb. If you call yourself a Christian, then you should be meek and humble enough to allow the book to govern your life. And if you don't allow the book to govern your life, then you're really not a child of God. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's not just a problem here. It's a problem here. 
If I come to the book and I look, and the scripture says that, that, that marriage is between a man and a woman, then why should I care what the Supreme Court says? What difference does it matter to me what the President of the United States says if the governor comes along and says he doesn't see anything wrong with it and he'll attend the ceremonies of people who get together like that? It makes no difference at all. What does the book say compared to the book? If your son, your daughter, your cousin, anybody say anything about this, you come back to the book. Because ultimately, it's the book that brings conviction. It's the book that enlightens us and helps us to understand the truth. Because if a person is going in the wrong direction and they turn around and come back to God, they're going to find God's mercy. All the paths are paved in mercy and truth. And let's not forget, we haven't always had the light that we have today. Some of us, when we were growing up, we didn't know then what we know now. But since we know today something better than what we knew yesterday, we still got to be merciful to people who don't know. Yeah. You, you see these people out in the streets today, and they're screaming, and they're shouting, and they're got their fists in the air, and they've been running around talking about, Israel bombing this hospital and that all that stuff and then and then Israel was very smart with intercepting a, a, a phone call in Arabic between the people who actually shot the missile and it was the Hamas people that shot the missile and then it accidentally hit hit the uh, hospital but yet they they played the the audio tape on television for everybody to be able to hear so that they would everybody would know that it wasn't Israel that sent the missile. It was Hamas because they had him on there saying, I think we made a mistake. And the guy said, well, where did that missile come from? Is that one of ours? He said, yep, it's one of ours. Think of that. You've got to come back to the truth and measure and gauge everything by the truth. And the scripture in verse 10 makes it very plain here, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. God's covenant has been made with numerous people in the Bible. He had a covenant with Noah. See? He had a covenant with Abraham. Now, what was the covenant that he made with Noah? He's not going to flood the earth again. What was the sign of that, the rainbow? He had a covenant with Abraham, and, and he said, you're going to be the, the patriarch of, of great many people, and what's going to be the sign of that, the circumcision? So God made a covenant with a lot of people. He's got a covenant with Moses, covenant with David, a number of people there, there are covenants with. But yet the Scripture says for us in the New Testament, God has made a new covenant with us, and he said if the old covenant hadn't been without fault, there wouldn't have been a need for a new one. So now we have a new covenant because we have a new high priest, a new sacrifice, better blood, a better name, Jesus Christ has sacrificed himself, and on the basis of the covenant that we have with him, if we walk with him, God will maintain all the promises according to the covenant. Yeah, stand on it. Believe it. Don't change. Well, notice, notice then verse 11. For your name's sake, pardon my iniquity, for it's great. So what's great? Is it his name or is it his iniquity? Well, the way it's written in the Hebrew, and certainly the way it's written here in the English, it could refer to either one of them. But then you would expect to find a word like they are great. 
So it's speaking singularly of one of these, but I can tell you this, God's name is great because his name denotes his character, and God often acts a certain way because of his character. He doesn't want his name to be diminished in the earth. And God will keep his word. That's why he's called a covenant keeper. But when David says here, pardon my iniquity, he's talking to the one who's only capable of pardoning iniquity. Nobody can forgive like God. You know, nobody. And if 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 we look at this and just kind of tear it apart, verse 11, first of all, you've got to have an acknowledgement of sin or, or of iniquity. And you've got to own it. This is what I did wrong. A lot of people don't want to do that. They don't want to ever acknowledge they're wrong. Can, can you imagine being married to somebody who didn't ne- did not ever want to say I'm sorry? Think of that. There are people married to folks like that who who never will say I'm sorry or I was wrong. And some people, when they when they are wrong and they know they're wrong, what they do is they just keep talking, trying to talk you into believing that they're actually right. So it becomes a delusion, a personal. Why are you shaking your head back there, Lily? Becomes a personal, personal delusion that that a person is in. So I have to first acknowledge this is my sin. It doesn't belong to you. This is mine. And if I know that I've sinned, then I need to know where to go to deal with my sin, and I can go to God. Because if I go to him, he forgives entirely, he forgives completely, and he cleans me up so that my conscience now believes I'm free. And the difference between God and people when it comes to forgiveness is you can go to people and people will tell you, I forgive you, and then they still hold on to it. Yeah, they'll hold on to it. They'll, they'll hold a grudge against you. But when you go to God and God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Now, he doesn't forget everything. Now, the reason I know that is because you read the prophets from Isaiah all the way through Malachi, and it seemed to me like every time Israel got into trouble, the prophets were rehearsing to them their history and their idolatry. I mean, even after God forgave them. And they're telling them again, don't you remember back when you were in the wilderness? You people went after every strange god, and you were worshiping idols out under every green bay tree, on every hill and mountaintop you were in sin. And then letting them know you you were there, you were forgiven, but it looks like now you're going back to that. My iniquity has to be forgiven by God, and this is what psychiatrists and psychologists can't understand because they only deal with people as if there are only two facets of people. They deal with the mind, and then they deal with the physical. But the Bible says we're spirit, soul, and body. So we have to understand then when we come to God and the Lord's dealing with, with our iniquity, if we truly find forgiveness with him, there's a weight that has been lifted and we can finally stand up and we can go on and walk with God. Otherwise, you sit on the couch with a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you regurgitate some of the worst things ever happened in your life. And as you're, as you're rehearsing that, do you realize you're not getting any cleaner? No. If if you have to sit there with a man or a woman and vomit all of that out, you'll need a bath by the time you're done. Especially if you've got to go back to your childhood and come on back up to where you are now. But if you come to God 
God is able to take hyssop, spiritually speaking, and wash you, make you clean, whole. And and I thank God for a conscience that has been cleansed by the blood. Aren't you glad God forgives the sin? Yeah, where would we all be if, if the Lord didn't forgive of sin? We'd all be in trouble. Well, verse verse 12 is interesting then here because it says, What man is he that fears the Lord? Let's work on that word fear. Now, by fear, <clears throat> when you look at biblical illustrations, and that, that's what I'm going to use rather than just how we describe it today, because typically what people will say is, okay, God doesn't want you to be afraid of him or something like that. But if, if we use biblical illustrations, let's, let's, let's think of this. Remember with the Ten Commandments when Moses went, or he was still down here with Israel, up to the top of the mountain there were thunders and lightnings. And, and the people were standing down there, and they looked up there and saw that thick smoke, thunders and lightnings, and they said, there's no way on this earth we're going anywhere near that hill. You go, Moses. Yeah, they, 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 were, they were a little afraid. They didn't have anything to do with that at all. So Moses goes up there. He stays 40 days. He comes down. And then, of course, he's got to put that veil on because of the glory of God that's upon him. But even though God was using him, he still had all of these things that were taking place, such as the sons of Korah and their rebellion. Remember how they went to Moses and they said, you think you're better than us. You think you're stronger than us. You think you're God's best choice. And, and Moses, he, he was so humble, he went to God. He said, Lord, you hear what these people are saying? Because I haven't done anything to try to exalt myself. And God said to Moses, okay, you go set all of this stuff up, and I'm going to demonstrate to them who's the strongest. So he went and he told Korah and all his leaders and elders, look, come down here to the tabernacle. God wants to talk to all of you. But Korah and his family said, they leaned in the tent door and said, we don't care anything about what you're saying, and we're not coming anywhere. So just move on. Well, Moses said, okay, well, if God is God, then God's going to do something new and open up the earth, and some folks are going to disappear. And that's what happened. It started shaking, and then pretty soon the earth split, and Korah and his family and the tribe, they all went down into the pit. And the Bible says they were screaming, they were yelling, and then it said the earth closed up on them. He said, well, what happened to the children of Israel? They probably they decided that day they probably did not murmur against Moses for a little while. Now, it may not have lasted but four days, but 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 the, for the rest of that day, everybody was on Moses' side. So so these stories I'm I'm trying to get you to see these stories were designed to help people to realize God really is not someone to play with. Okay, that's what we're, so that's what we're talking about with with fear. We're talking about an awesome reverence and respect for God. If you think of the story of Ananias and Sapphire, remember they had some ground that they were going to sell and they were going to give it to the leaders of the church so they could help support the poor. And they told Peter, we're going to do it. We got a little piece of ground. We're going to sell that real estate, bring that money right in here to the church and let you help feed the hungry. And so they went, decided they didn't want to do it. They decided when they got that little piece of money, they said, this is too much money to be going to a church. So we need to hold back 
some of this here. And that's what they did. So so Peter then, Peter's talking to the hubby who, who comes to one of the services, and he says, now, Ananias. He said, didn't you guys say you were going to sell a piece of property for X amount of dollars? Yes, sir. Man of God, yes, sir. Well, did you do? Absolutely. Did you bring that money? We did. And the Bible says, man, fell over dead. Fell over dead because he lied to Peter, who the Scripture says was full of the Holy Ghost. And Peter just calls for the undertakers to carry the man out. He didn't even stop the service. He told everybody, turn now to him, 323. Carried that body right out. They kept the service going, kept doing whatever they were doing. A few hours later, here comes Sapphire. She's been to Walmart. She's been shopping in the wilderness. She's been having the time of her life, has no idea she doesn't even have a husband anymore. She doesn't even know she's a widow. And she comes and stands in front of Peter, and, and Peter says to her, can, can you please tell me whether or not you guys sold that piece of ground? Oh, absolutely. You better believe it. We sold it. Did you bring that money in here to the church like you said you were? Oh, yeah, we did exactly like we said we were going to do. He said, how is it that you and your husband could covenant together, conspire together, to lie to God and lie to me, full of the Holy Ghost? Said, you haven't lied to me. You've lied to the Holy Ghost. And he said, the people that just carried your husband out. See, now she's learning her husband dead. The people who just carried your husband out are now here to take you out too. She fell over dead. Now, the scripture says the fear of the Lord came over the whole city when that happened. I know it would have happened because if it would have been me, if somebody would have even invited me to go to a church like that, I probably would have said no. You, you want me to go there? People die when they lie. There, I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm not going there. I just I just stay right over here where where I am at First Baptist. You you guys you stay over there. You you do that. But but here's the thing: the fear of God came upon that whole area, and they realized that wasn't somebody to play with. See that that's what I'm getting at. Because sometimes when people describe grace or they describe God's character, they make it seem like. Some of those stories you read in the Old Testament you'll never see again in the New Testament. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm not going to try to give you any personal illustrations, although I know I could, but, but I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if when we get to heaven we'll find out that there are a lot of people who went to heaven early because the king wasn't happy. Yeah, yeah, the king wasn't happy. There was a man who had a really powerful ministry back in the 50s and 60s named William Branham. And, and this man truly was like a prophet of God. He, he had a ministry unlike anything I'd ever heard of. You can still go on YouTube and see all kinds of uh, meetings where he'd be preaching under a tent with 10,000 people in an auditorium with 30,000 people. He went to South Africa back in the 50s, had over 100,000 people came out to him. But but he had had this visitation when he was a child. An angel had come to him. And then when he got older, he had that same visitation. The same angel came to him and said, I'm giving you a gift of healing, and you'll be able to minister with the word of knowledge, and you'll be able to detect if an evil spirit is present in somebody's life. Now, that's the, just, a, just a powerful thing to watch 
this man sometime, and you'll have people that are driving from all around the world coming up under that tent. He's never seen them before. He's got them up there on the platform talking to them in front of thousands of people, and he says, ma'am, I don't know you. You've never seen me before. We've never had a conversation happen. I said, no. He said, but you came here today with your daughter driving such and such Chevrolet, and you came here because the doctor told you six days ago that you've got this growth and, and they, nothing they can do about it and it's terminal and, and, and they, you've seen the x-rays and God wants me to tell you right now you're healed. Now reach for that goiter. And thing gone. Just, just gone. She just goes screaming and yelling. The people in wheelchairs come right out. He brings people up in front who were totally blind, totally deaf. Only minister I've ever seen like that in all my life where where a hundred percent he's right every time when he was ministering to these people. However, you can have the power of God at work in your life, and if you're not careful, you can get some bad doctrine up here. See? He had people around him who started telling him he was the Elijah to come. Yeah. And so William Branham started believing what John Alexander Dowie believed 125 years ago over in in uh, Illinois, who built Zion, Illinois. And, and Branham started believing he was some special messenger to herald the coming of the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand me. He was to preach the coming of Jesus and preach the gospel like anybody in here right now, but he was not the Elijah to come. But the people were telling him that. Then pretty soon he started with some doctrines where he was believing that when it says in... Uh, I believe John, which is Cain, was of that wicked one. He came to the conclusion that that meant that Cain was the product of the serpent's physical relationship with Eve. Serpent seed doctrine. Yeah. And other heresies that he came to believe. Now, years ago, 20 years ago or so, we had, we had somebody started coming to church here who believed that. And, and and believing that, I, I made it very plain to this person privately, if you open up your mouth and try to mention that to anybody in this church, I'm going to get up in this pulpit and I'm going to destroy that doctrine because that's not God. That's not God. We're not going to let that leaven get into the midst of this, this congregation. Then I had a, a, a another man over in uh, Hebron one time showed up, believed that same serpent seed doctrine, and he's trying to tell people about that. And so I just kind of grabbed him, you know, politely by the arm and just started walking him towards the door, and we got outside. And I said, sir, somewhere out here under God's green, blue sky, there's somebody who believes that. But we're not here. So you, you need to find you a place where they believe that, you see. He said, well, why didn't you just leave him there to sit in the church where he wasn't teachable? And, and what if he would have got that inside somebody's head and that thing would have just broke out, you see? Yeah. It was like one time I had a lady who came here to church, and, and she was all into believing and promoting and approving of homosexuality and all of that stuff. And she's sitting in the church. She comes several times listening to me preach, and then after one of the meetings, she meets me at the back door, and she says to me, well, I like everything you're saying, but I've just got a problem with uh, some of your beliefs about marriage. I said, well, what would your problems be? 
She said, well, you said that marriage is only between a man and a, and a female. I said, well, that's what the Bible teaches. She said, well, I just can't believe that because, I mean, we've got sociologists and scientists and other people talking about these things, and I, I, I just don't see how that's, that's helpful. So I, I grabbed her. I walked her right outside that door there, and I said, let me ask you a couple of questions. I said, in the years that you've been living right here in this county, I said, do you believe that Jesus wants to see people saved? She said, yes. I said, I want to know how many people in the same-sex lifestyle that you have led out of that sin. How many have you witnessed to? How many have you talked to? She said, not a one. I said, how, how many have you seen change their lifestyle and come out of that because of you? She said, not one. I said, I've seen a whole lot of people come out of homosexuality in preaching the gospel all these years. You see? And, and, and again, what, what I'm saying is, a person can have bad doctrine, and if, if you're not careful, that'll become leaven in the midst of that church. Now, a person's heart can actually be right with God, and they'd be crazy up here. That's why the Bible says be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There are plenty of people, like Mr. Branham, who I honestly believe were saved from their sins, but because they got all mixed up with kooky doctrine, when he died in 1965, I believe it was, when he passed away, I believe that spirit went to heaven. Because you know what it says in, in Corinthians? Paul says some people who won't do right their bodies have to be turned over to the devil for destruction so their soul and spirit can be saved. That's what it says in Corinthians. And this is what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church. He said, I can't believe you're letting this stuff go on. you got a man sleeping with his father's wife. How in the world is it you let that stay in the church then? You haven't said anything. Now, in a smaller church, it's a lot easier to handle that stuff. But when you start dealing with churches with hundreds of people and thousands of people, everybody doesn't know each other, so you may not even know what's going on in a person's life and in a person's home. But it's important to know the truth. Scripture says here, what man is it that fears the Lord? The one that knows the Bible. Yeah. If we know the book, we'll have a fear of God. It says, that man shall he teach the way that he shall choose. If if we have a healthy respect for the Lord, then I honestly believe God will teach us, take us down the path that we're supposed to go. Yeah. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, what does the Bible say? He won't depart. So, so there is a path, and moms and dads have a great challenge trying to keep those kids on the path, and of course, when they're under your care, you can do, for the most part, what you can to keep them on that path because they're in your house. But once they come of age and they're making their own decision and they decide to go on a totally, totally different path, now they have to deal with God individually. They have to deal with the fear of God, whether or not they're going to hold on to it or dispense with it. But in either case, you have done your job. You cannot force, feed God to anybody. And you can't beat it over, over somebody's head. You can tell them, you can witness, you can love, you can remind them. And as a mom and dad, you have opportunities to share things that strangers can't share because they may listen to what you have to say. But if they've, told, if they've turned a deaf ear to what you're saying, then leave them to God. God's big enough. He's big enough to handle them. Let me just give you one more verse here. Verse 13, the person that fears God, his soul shall dwell at ease. His seed shall inherit the earth. 
That's like what it says in the gospel, the meek shall inherit the earth. His soul shall dwell at ease, his soul shall dwell in bliss, his soul will be happy, be calm, peaceful, at rest. Troubled people tend to trouble other people. But people who dwell at ease, they tend to be a calming factor in the lives of other people. You find somebody that worries a lot, they'll worry you to death. Yeah, they'll worry you to death. Just give, give the right situation, they'll, they'll impose their worries on you. So you've got to be strong enough to, to be able to be the, the calming influence that says, now look, everything's going to work out. God's involved here. He's a big God, and there's no sense in us just getting all, getting all crazy about this and thinking the worst things, and the worst things haven't happened, because when you get worried, of course, you're, you're meditating on things that aren't, aren't true, and, and when you're meditating on the lie, that's exactly what the devil wants, because he wants a person to dwell in an unrighteous kind of fear. And the Bible says fear has torment. This is why people who worry all the time, they're tormented by their own thoughts. They can never find a place of rest and peace. They can't enter into this verse here where it says his soul shall dwell at ease because their own thoughts torment them. You step outside the house, oh, my goodness, do you really want to leave? I mean, after all, you know, there are a lot of bad things happening outside today. People hitting deer. You could be walking down the road and a deer running to you. Maybe you ought to just stay home today. See, that kind of a thing. Oh, no, don't, don't go to the grocery store. You go to the grocery store. You, didn't you hear what happened over there in Illinois the other day? Somebody got shot in the grocery store. Ah, you, you really want to go to the grocery store? Well, well, Dad, I mean, I'm in a town with 400 people. Why can't I go shopping? i got to eat. So worry, it causes people to believe things are going to happen that haven't happened. And those thoughts trouble a person. But Isaiah 26.3 says this, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Think about God. Yeah, think about God. His seed shall inherit the earth. One day, the rapture is going to take place. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. But at the end of that tribulation, Jesus is going to come back with his disciples and we're going to be right here on planet Earth, right here. For 4,000 years, the devil's going to be bound, and the righteous are going to inherit this earth. Yeah. But, but even before then, we can take this verse to mean, just like what God did with Abraham, wherever the soles of your feet go, I'm going to cause you to prosper. God can cause you to inherit the earth where you live. Yeah. He can give you the ground that's under your feet right now. The one thing in this earth right now that God's not making any any more of is real estate. Is real estate. He's saving souls. It may be he may be making stars out there. I, I don't know, but but he's not making any more real estate. This earth is as big and as small as it's going to get. And if you own property, you're blessed. You're blessed. You you have an inheritance that God has provided for you, and if you understand it with the right attitude and you're submissive and yielded to the things of God, you understand every time you drive onto your property, every time you walk into your house, every time you step on your ground, you've inherited the earth that God provided for you. 
And believe me when I tell you, there are millions of people out here living in apartments, living in trailer parks, living in tents and under bridges that wish they had some earth that they could walk on. Yeah? So rather than complain about how large or how small your home is, why not just praise God you've inherited something from the king? He's kept covenant with you, and if it came to you from your parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, or if it came to you through your labor and your endeavor, however you got it, praise God you have some earth, and you're blessed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to look into the scripture. Every one of us in here are heirs according to the promise of God and according to the promises you've made to Abraham. So, Lord, I thank you that each of us have something that you blessed us with. Lead us, God. Help us to be guidable. Help us to be teachable. Help us to acknowledge the fear of the Lord and to walk with you and to receive the blessings that you have for us. Guide us every day. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen.